0: Church, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. We are going through the book of Mark. If you did not know that, that's where we are. If you haven't been here, that's what's happening. And you picked a really good Sunday because we are going to talk about the unpardonable sin. Now, we're going to talk about some other things, um, but everybody's favorite topic is the unpardonable sin. Has anybody ever heard of the unpardonable sin? I think that uh, you do not need to be a Christian to have heard of that. It's been a part of popular culture and discussions for years and years and years. If you're in Bible college, you sit around in dormitories over coffee and you argue over what it really is. Um, And uh, if you're a normal person, uh, it at some point has terrified you. Raise your hand if this passage has terrified anybody. I'll raise my hand first and foremost, and I will probably maybe think about telling you a story in regard to that, in regards to my own self. I'm just not sure what to share or what not to share. Okay. Now, having said all that, let's read, uh, starting with verse 20, and we're going to read through the end of the chapter. So Mark chapter 3, verse 20. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about all those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Praise the Lord. Not as good as Rob yet with the glasses on the forehead. I'll figure that out, Rob, eventually. I've reached the spot where I keep losing my place if I don't have the glasses. So, fun, fun passage of Scripture. It is a serious passage of Scripture. You cannot hear from the lips of Jesus that there is a thing called an unforgivable eternal sin, and come away with that with a joke. I I like to joke. I like to bring a little humor into the sermons, if I can. Whether I'm funny or not is up to you, but try. This is not really one of those passages that you can insert some joking. Jesus has told us in this passage in the middle here, He has told us there is an unforgivable sin. So that's weighty. We're going to come to that in a second. The first thing I want us to look at is the context and that Mark is doing something that uh, the commentators use a fancy word for it, um, but I'm going to call it a narrative sandwich. What Mark has done, if you look at verse Um, 20 and 21, he talks about Jesus' family, and if you skip over the unforgivable sin passage, he talks again, Mark introduces and says that his mother and his brothers were looking for him, and Jesus says, who's my mother and brother but those who do the will of, uh, of him who sent me? Or whoever does the will of God, he's my brother and my mother and my sister. So the sandwich is, talk about family, talk about family, In the middle, unforgivable sin and some other stuff. So the sandwich is, and Mark does this because he's highlighting the middle part. He wants us to see something incredibly significant uh, theologically and, and for the sake of your soul about this sin that's unforgivable. Let's look real quick, though, at verse 20 and 21. In particular, verse 21. Of all the Gospels, only Mark records verse 21. When his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Jesus' family, we don't believe Mary is included in this particular element because we know that Mary believed that her son was who he said he was because remember the Christmas story when angels came and told her what was going to happen and she believed it. Mary is a Christian her entire life, okay? So I don't think Mary's here, but Jesus has some other brothers, two of which we know by name, James and Jude, both of who wrote epistles, so we, they get their act together, but imagine that your brother is the son of God. Now I have a bunch of brothers, I have a sister, she's here today, which is nice. But imagine growing up with Jesus as your brother. Did anybody have brothers and you fought and you picked and you made fun of? Anybody at all and you wrestled and you sometimes blamed them for things that they didn't do or whatever, whatever the case may be? Siblings. Imagine Jesus as your sibling. Put yourself in their shoes. And he is perfect. And not just regular perfect. I don't mean Marsha, Marsha, Marsha perfect. I mean he's perfect. He is the son of God. Everything he did would have been right. Okay? They are in Nazareth. Nazareth. Jesus is in Capernaum, he's at the house, he's just uh, picked his disciples, a great crowd is following him around, the crowd is so thick he can't even eat when he gets back to the house. And so the family is either concerned about him because he's not able because of all these crowds, or they're concerned about him because everybody is talking about Jesus of Nazareth who is healing people and casting out demons. Somewhere in there, in his sermons, because Jesus is preaching one sermon, repent for the kingdom of God is here. And then he backs up that message by casting out demons and healing the sick. This is, this is a rumbling that's going on that is unlike anything anybody's ever seen. And the family has come to a conclusion. He's out of his mind. Mark just throws that in there. It's the only, it's the only gospel that has that. Skip down to verse thirty-one, where Jesus is told as he's preaching and he's got a crowd and they can't get to him. He's told that outside his mother and his brothers and his family is there, and uh, and Jesus says, "Who's really my family? Are those?" who do the will of God. Jesus is not putting down or dismissing his family. He's merely and really saying that I'm here for something more. I'm here for something bigger. I'm here for a family of God. And the family of God, those people are those who do the will of God. That's really all that he's saying. And it is important, you can look it up in Acts 1.14, That all of Jesus' family, as far as we can tell, came to believe in him. James, who wrote the book of James, and Jude, who wrote the book of Jude, were the half-brothers of Jesus. It would be interesting when we get to heaven to hear their stories. Because they would have had a perspective on Jesus that none of us had. But again, imagine what it would be like to realize that your half-brother was God in the flesh. Just just one of those wild, crazy thoughts. But they didn't believe in him at first. Later, somewhere, they are convinced that he is who he says that he is. Go to verse 22. Let's move on from that narrative piece and let's look at this really important and sobering, and it is sobering, section of scripture. The scribes have come down from Jerusalem. You always come down from Jerusalem, because Jerusalem is the pinnacle of Jewish culture and society. Also, it's up on a hill. So they're always coming down from Jerusalem. It's kind of like in West Virginia, where Charleston is the capital, and maybe unlike any other state that I'm aware of, West Virginia is strange in its devotion to preserving Charleston as the premier center of the state. Anybody know what I'm talking about, lifelong West Virginia folks? Uh, Anybody remember when they nixed an airport that was supposed to drastically better the region and would have? But it wasn't in Charleston, therefore, we're not going to do it. We're not going to do it because it's, Char- it's Charleston. It's, a, it's where the state capital is and it's so pretty and we can't, uh, it's got to be here. Nowhere. Okay, so kind of like that here in West Virginia. Jerusalem, though, much more important than Charleston, West Virginia. Lord, forgive me for even comparing the two. And Charleston, throw it away, Jerusalem, center of life for the Jewish community, the scribes have heard about all the stuff that Jesus is doing. And they have come down because they want to put an end to what he's doing. Remember back earlier in chapter 3 where the Pharisees started plotting against Jesus after he healed the guy of the withered hand. And they actually plotted with the Herodians, which were people that would not have even been real believers. They were were liberal politician types that had nothing really to do uh, with following Jewish custom. And so their hatred is deep. The scribes have come down, and they say he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out demons. There's a really long and fascinating history of the word Beelzebul, or Beelzebub, Um, and the word really, it just means Lord of the flies, Lord of the dung heap. The reason there are flies is because there's a dung heap, and it was obviously not a good title, but they also say the prince of demons. It is clearly a reference to Satan, and what they are saying is, is that Jesus is clearly doing miracles. There is no denying the guy with the withered hand the guy with leprosy, and there is no denying on several occasions that Jesus has walked into a synagogue and demons start screaming. That is not normal. Jesus is clearly different than anybody else that they have ever encountered, and their explanation is he is demon-possessed. And that's how he's doing this. So they're not denying the miracles. Just want to carefully put a parenthesis here. In our day, people try to explain why things were a miracle even though it doesn't look like it was. In Jesus' day, they are just merely saying, yep, he's doing the miracles, but it's because of the devil. Jesus answers with logic 101. He says in verse 23, He calls them to himself, speaks to them in parables. So he calls the scribes, who are, now think about this, they said he was possessed by Satan, and that's how he was casting out demons. And he says, okay guys, come here. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. This is pretty simple, right? If you are on a team, and that your own teammates are against you, you're not going to win. If you are in a war, and your own army starts fighting against itself, you're not going to win. If a kingdom, if a house is against itself, it can't win. If a house has divided itself against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen against himself and is divided... He cannot stand, but is coming to an end. So Jesus is simply saying, it's really not complicated. There's no way that I'm possessed by Satan, because that would mean that Satan is fighting against Satan because your accusation is, is I'm casting out demons by demons. Doesn't make any sense, guys. Then he says... But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Now, this is one of those moments where Jesus gives you whiplash a little bit, like, where, what are we talking about? Why are we talking about strong, man, strong men? Well, again, very very simple. If you go into somebody's house and the guy is stronger than you and you want to take what he's got, You're not going to be able to do that unless in some way you figure out how to bind or subdue the guy who's stronger than you. What is Jesus, what is he talking about that? The strong man is Satan. And Jesus' ministry is clearly demonstrating that he has more power than Satan. So what Jesus is saying is, I have come into the strong man's house, and I have bound him. My ministry is proof that the work of God is at work because the only there are no human beings stronger than satan it's only God who is stronger than Satan. I am here, God in the flesh. this is another allusion to his deity that he's making, and I have bound the strong man because. I'm healing diseases, and I'm casting out demons. It's what he's been saying. The kingdom of God is at hand. I am the hallmark and representative of that kingdom. I am the Messiah, and because I'm here, I have bound the strong man, and I am showing you I am plundering his goods, which is you people. That is what he's doing. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, and he is rescuing people from the dominion of darkness. That is what Jesus is doing. He's demonstrating that he has bound the strong man. And this concept of binding a strong man goes into the Old Testament. It is something they would have been familiar with. Jesus is saying, Satan can't cast out Satan. That would be a house divided against itself. What I am showing you, though, is is that I've come and bound Satan, and I am stronger than him. I'm plundering his house. I'm taking people away from the kingdom of darkness. Once you go to Matthew chapter twelve, we're gonna, and you might want to put your finger here because we're gonna reference this a couple different times. This is the same account in Matthew chapter 12, verse 27. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Then he goes into the same thing about the strong man's house and binding the strong man. Um, same as in Mark. The reason I wanted to read that is Jesus specifically says, the kingdom of God has come upon you if I am here by the Spirit of God casting out demons. So Jesus has made it clear, there is no way that Satan is going to cast out Satan and I am demonstrating that the power of the Holy Spirit is at work in my ministry, in my life. I am not an anointed prophet, only I am the Son of God. Because then he says something that we're all interested in. Verse 28. Truly, I say to you, let's stop. That word truly really is amen. Amen. Most of the time that phrase is tacked on at the end of a statement. It means true, or so be it, or this is the truth. Jesus is saying that at the front of a sentence, and he's the only author, or he's the only person in the New Testament that does this. Paul doesn't do it, Peter doesn't do it, James doesn't do it. Nobody authenticates their words with an amen at the front except Jesus. It's just an interesting point that he is constantly affirming that my words are truth throughout his ministry. Truly I say to you all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. So let's stop right there first. This verse is very exciting. Think about what he's saying. All sins will be forgiven the children of man. All of them. There isn't a sin that is not forgivable. And then he goes a little further. Whatever blasphemies they utter, that will be forgiven. Matthew chapter 12 says it even a little more. Verse 31 of Matthew 12, he says, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, people. The blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. The point I'm making before we get into the unforgivable part is that even blasphemy against Jesus, he's saying, is forgiven. Do you just think about that for just a little bit? Murderers are forgiven. I remember when we, Carissa was there for this, I remember witnessing to my grandfather who did give his heart to Jesus before he died. But I remember him... Being frustrated and angry at the idea of forgiveness, which at least is an honest anger. His anger was You're telling me that Hitler, after all that he did, could have received forgiveness? No. Now, why did why would you feel that way? Because he was a monster, right? Child rapists, can, can they be forgiven? Yes. Monstrosities of sin can be forgiven because Jesus took the judgment of God on the cross for our sin. So Jesus is saying, all the sins can be forgiven. Even blaspheming against the Son of Man can be forgiven. But, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Let's define the word blasphemy. we, We make it into a word that seems... Oh my gosh, what exactly is it? It really is simply to vilify, to speak evil against. That's really all that it is. It's in particular referencing something that is holy that you speak evil against. So speaking evil against God is blasphemy. Let me say it in a way that will make everybody feel very warm and fuzzy. Taking his name in vain is blasphemy. Because you are taking the holy name of God and profaning it with whatever it is you're saying. and What we typically try to do is polish that up as best we can as if it's not what it is. Right? This is what we all do with sin. And we like to say, well, that's not really that big of a deal. Or, there's so many people that do that, surely it's not that big of a deal, but really that is a form of blasphemy. It is not the same as raising your fist and screaming and cursing at God. That would be a little further down the road of blasphemy, but any evil speaking towards God is blasphemy. Do you know that the apostle Paul specifically says in Timothy that he received this ministry even though formerly I was a blasphemer? because he spoke against Christ so vehemently. Blasphemy is forgivable unless it is this specific blasphemy that Jesus mentions here. So let's get in to what I know we all want to get into, but I want to stop again just real quick. D- did you hear the part about all the sins are forgivable? Did you hear that part? Did you hear that all the stupid things that we have done are forgivable because of the love and the mercy of God? We've heard that part, right? It is interesting that we gravitate towards that one thing that you cannot be forgiven from, which we sh- we kind of gravitate there because it's terrifying. And it's supposed to be terrifying. But it also speaks a little bit to our condition that we like cows Or, sheep want to know where the fence is. Where's the fence so I can go up right up against it and scratch my back on it? I want to know how far can I go, which is indicative of sin. If you have children, you already know that this is exactly what they're like. You can't play with that toy. So they pick up the blue one instead of the red one. I meant all the toys like that. Well, you didn't specifically say this color of toy, right? How many of you have, does anybody remember being like that yourself? Well, mom technically didn't say, and I have said for a long time, the moment you say technically, we already know you're lying, cheating, and stealing. The moment you say, well, technically I didn't do that, means you absolutely did it, right? Can we just be honest with ourselves? I hear this at work all the time. Well, technically they didn't say, that means you're lying, that means you're cheating, that means you're stealing. We know exactly where your heart is. You're subverting what was clearly outlined. You are a liar or a cheater or something, something to that effect. We like to know where the fence is so we can get right up next to it and look over on the other side. Right? That's why we're drawn to the verse that says, this sin is unforgivable. Look at what they did in verse 30. Verse 30 explains exactly what this sin is. They were saying, he has an unclean spirit. In fact, let me read the sentence again. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. The word for or the word because tells us why this is an unforgivable sin They came down from Jerusalem and said, it is by the power of the devil that he cast out devils. And Jesus explains to them, one, that's not possible or true. Two, it's it's actual evidence that I am from God and the kingdom of God is here. And three, your attribution of the devil to the work of God, you saying that it's the devil when it's the work of God, is right up next to blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Because they're attributing what God is doing to the devil. Now, I have to mention something here because immediately my mind can go to great men and women of God who don't believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit being active for today, who have said for years and years and years and years that things like tongues or prophecy or healing is of the devil. Has anybody heard that before? So if they're saying that, does that mean they've committed the unpardonable sin? Is that what that means? Because I, I believe that the Scripture teaches that those those gifts of the Spirit are legitimate and those gifts of the Spirit ha- have happened uh, throughout church history. And we can have a discussion on what that looks like. I wouldn't suggest turning on television to get a good idea of what the gifts of the Spirit look like. I would say that you should avoid that at all costs. We can look to the Bible and see what that is. So... When your Baptist friend says that speaking in tongues is of the devil, does that mean, if tongues really are true, that they have just committed the unpardonable sin? No. So why would I say that? When that's what these guys are doing, they're saying that Jesus' work, that is through the Holy Spirit, is of the devil. Let Let me just give a couple things here. You cannot remove from this context the people he's talking to. He is talking to scribes who are experts in the law. He is talking to people that know Scripture. He's talking to people that should recognize that the activity of this ministry of his is clearly from God. And yet they Jealousy and their hatred has so blinded them that they are attributing what he's doing to Satan. The reason that I believe that this, let me, I'm trying to be careful. I'm not sure that Jesus is actually saying that these guys have committed it. But he is saying that what they're saying is right there. Now he may mean, they may have committed this sin, but he is saying that this, this type of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, this evil speaking of the Holy Spirit, this knowing and wanton and purposeful and willing rejection of God and saying it's of the devil is really what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is now have they actually done that or is there some ignorance in here I don't I honestly I don't know so can we just say that we, we may not know the answer to that, that it, they may have done it some of them may have and some of them may have not only God is going to know the answer to that. But, but what Jesus is saying is, is that there is a sin. It's called blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And once that's been committed, there is no coming back from it. Let me give what I do think the definition of what he's saying is. It is willing, knowing, and explicit rejection of the Holy Spirit to the point of attributing that work of the Spirit to Satan. It is the willful, willing, knowing, and explicit rejection of the Holy Spirit to the point that you are attributing his work to the devil. Let's go to the book of John for a little bit of help. Go to John chapter 16. Jesus has just told them that he's leaving. They're not happy about it. We're going to start reading with verse 5. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me where are you going. But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you the holy spirit but if <clears throat> excuse me but if i go i will send him to you and when he comes he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment so the holy spirit convicts the world of sin if he is the one that convicts he is the one that reveals who Christ is. When you became a Christian, what happened was the gospel was preached and the Holy Spirit opened your eyes to see the truth. And Jesus said that you can blaspheme the Spirit of God in a way that you never come to the truth. There's a couple different ways people have interpreted this. Some people have interpreted it to say that the blasphemy or the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit all that it means is is that you have ignored the gospel, you've rejected Christ and because you've never accepted his forgiveness, therefore you're not forgiven. So that by that reason, you are unforgiven and it's unpardonable because you never asked for forgiveness. And when you die and you go to hell, there's no chance now to do so. So some people have said that it is merely those people who never come to Christ in a saving way, which in a sense is true, right? I mean, that's true. If you don't, if you never come to Christ, you are not going to heaven. There's only one way to get to heaven, and that is through Jesus Christ. So that is true, but it doesn't explain why Jesus says that there is, that it's blasphemy. It is a speaking a word against the Holy Spirit. And if you go to Matthew chapter 12, he says, whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come. So it's not just in the age to come that this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit happens. The unpardonable part of it happens here on earth in this age, which is scary. I think... Jesus on the cross also helps us understand this. When he says, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they are doing. Is that not one of the most famous things he says on the cross? They are literally crucifying the Son of God. They are mocking him. And Jesus says, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. So I I take from that, and I take from John, that the Holy Spirit is convicting the world of sin. And I take these guys who have rejected violently this clear ministry of God, the healing of bodies, the, the expulsion of demons, and I look at that and say, this is a willing, knowing, you do not accidentally commit blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Can we settle that? You're not going to stub your toe and cuss, oh no, I have committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That is, that is not how this works. I, I would say that you in a dark moment in your life, questioning God, even yelling at God, and I know people in this room who have done this, cursing God, do not believe that necessarily qualifies as blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus says they don't have forgiveness, and his whole message is repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. These people have moved beyond the capability of repentance. So can everybody follow me on that? They've moved beyond the capability of repentance because they've committed this sin. Who is it that leads us to repentance? It's the Holy Spirit that leads us to repentance. So the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit is this willful, knowing rejection of Him. And it is on purpose. It is intentional. You know what you're doing when you do it, and when you've done it, you don't ever desire to come back. There is no desire for repentance for those who have committed the unpardonable sin. This is really important because your brain gets tortured over this passage of Scripture that you may have committed it. If you desire repentance, you have not committed it, probably. Jesus, Jesus is saying that when you go back here and he says, all these blasphemies will be forgiven. All this speaking against God will be forgiven. But this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, this rejection that is intentional, this attributing to God that it's the devil, this is a stepping away that is permanent, that is never coming back and If you are even anxious about it, it's probably evidence that you haven't done it. But I do not want to diminish the reality of people who get in this place. Because there is a reality to people who get into a place of calloused, ugly, hard-hearted rejection of Christ. Let's go to the book of Hebrews. I'm just going to read three warning passages. Because I want us to be aware of the gravity of this. There's obviously, it's, it's heavy gravity. There is a reality here that Jesus in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke mentions this unforgivable sin, this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which I'm defining as a willful, knowing, explicit rejection of the Holy Spirit to the point that you're attributing his work to the work of the devil. And I want you to hear these warnings that are in Hebrews that tell us about the condition of our heart. The potential condition. Hebrews chapter 2. And just real quick, Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians. These are not Gentile Christians. These are Jewish Christians that have come to faith in Christ. They're scattered about. So their understanding of the law is deep. And the author of Hebrews is relying on that. So I want you to just keep that in the back of your mind. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay closer attention, much closer attention, to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received the just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? How do we escape if we neglect salvation? Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. He just got done explaining that there are elementary principles to the faith. Faith towards God, repentance from dead works, baptisms, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment, verse 3 of Hebrews chapter 6. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. That is, if you want my opinion, one of the absolute most terrifying passages of Scripture in the Bible. It is a warning. It is a warning. Do not become complacent with sin. It is a warning. It is really easy in our culture to become complacent and cozy with sin. Now, I'm not talking about that we should live our lives in utter fear in every moment of every day because the grace of God and the forgiveness of God are beautiful and wonderful. His mercy is new every morning. But this scripture is here for a reason. It is a warning passage. I believe, and I'm not going to have time to go into all of it in Hebrews chapter 6, but I believe it is a warning because interspersed in every congregation are true Christians and those who think they're Christians. And I'm not trying to scare you. I'm trying to give you the biblical warning to test yourself To see if you are really in the faith. Because these warnings are real. Verse 8. Or verse 7. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it. And produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated. Receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns. Receiving this rain, if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. I believe that the passage in Hebrews 6 is a reference to people who hear the gospel, who are aware, the tasting of the Holy Spirit, All of the, it, we could discuss that, that it's being aware of the miraculous work of God, which these Jewish Christians would have been. They would have been a part of communion and love feast. They would have been hearing and partakers and sharers in that message, but they've never truly repented and believed. And as a result, they are the kind of people that are going to drift away. And eventually, in that environment, a hardness of heart and a callousness towards sin, and those people leave, and it is impossible to renew them to repentance. Verse 9, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Everybody breathe. Things that belong to salvation. Paul, or whoever wrote this, I said Paul, confident of better things, but the warning passage is still there. These aren't the only warnings. If you would go with me to chapter 10, verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. If you break the law of Moses, remember he's talking to people who understand the law of Moses, because they grew up as Jews that are now Christians, and they understand that if you disregard it and set it aside and do what you want on the testimony of two or three witnesses, you are condemned. How much worse, verse 29, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. For we know Him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is a warning message. This is a warning in love to all of us. Do not hear in these passages that your struggle with sin, your struggle, is the same as the flippant acceptance of your sin. There's a difference. There are men and women of God who have struggled and fought and wept over their sin. And the reason why these warnings don't apply to that is because that's not what these warnings are addressing. These warnings are addressing the willful, knowing, deliberate, I am going to do whatever I like, attitude that causes somebody to get to a place and i would say this is individualistic i don't have a there isn't a formula for the unforgivable sin there isn't a series of words like a magic charm there isn't anything like that but it is the condition of the heart that grows rock hard calloused through this sinful lifestyle and saying I can, I can do this sin, and God's graceful. I can do this sin, God's merciful. When you start thinking that way, that should become a warning to you that hardness of heart is setting in and you need to say, God, help me right now. Now, if you commit sin and are grieved, good, 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 That is evidence of his grace and his love and his mercy. If you commit sin and hang your head in shame, good! All shame is not bad. We have really messed up our culture and our psychological psychobabble trying to get rid of things that God put in as warnings. What is the name of that disease where you can't feel anything? These people always die before they're 25 because they wind up with something, They bleed to death. They don't know they cut themselves. You guys know what I'm talking about? They, they can't feel themselves getting burned. They can't feel themselves getting hurt. They don't know that something's wrong. They have internal bleeding and they die without knowing. That is what happens in sin. You have this comfortable existence and you're dead under the penalty and weight of sin because your heart was hard and unfeeling. God gave us a sense of shame and guilt, not to live in shame and guilt, but as warnings. We have a stove that is electric. Electric goes off, you don't know which burner was on. There's been more than four or five occasions that I have touched the hot burner. The reason my hand did not stay there is because it burnt and I took my hand off the the warnings are meant to do that. Oh, ugh. The, the scriptures, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God is not to create in Christians a sense of God is unapproachable. God is this monster. It is to go, oh, no, 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 no. He is holy. I belong to him. If I'm going to be with him, I must live holy. And yet I'm a sinner. And Jennifer talked about it beautifully this morning that I can't consider anything coming from myself. It's from Christ. So these verses lead me again to say, I belong to Him and I can do nothing apart from Him. I need Him. Lord, I must have You again today. And I don't live in fear that I'm going to commit this. Instead, I live in the light of the knowledge of His grace and His mercy. And I ask for forgiveness when I sin. And I plead with God for His help because of this sin. And the older I get, the more sin I recognize. I recognize the pride and the arrogance and the stupidity and the bullheaded, dumb things that I think and start to realize that the condition of my heart is much worse than I thought that it was. And yet, deeper and deeper does that knowledge give a sense of His grace and how He loves and helps and moves us along. But the warning passages are meant to be hot. They are meant to make you go, oh my gosh, what am I doing? The unpardonable sin, I believe is the end result, this kind of living people that just willfully, wantonly reject Jesus. They speak against evilly the Holy Spirit who is the person of the Godhead who draws people to repentance and they reject completely, totally and utterly. I'm not talking about an altar call that you got at a camp meeting and you didn't respond or you've got somebody you're praying for that's been rejecting Jesus for years. My grandfather was 80, what, two when he became a Christian? But don't wait till you're 82 because you don't know you're going to make it to 82. We're not promised tomorrow. So take the warnings for what they're meant to be. When you warn your kids not to touch the hot stove, it's not because you hate them. It's because you love them. He goes on in chapter 12 to say, if you don't have discipline, you're illegitimate and not sons. No discipline feels good that feeling of, oh my gosh, what have I done? That, that inward conviction of the Holy Spirit. Without that, you are illegitimate and not sons. If you feel nothing for your sin, you should be asking yourself, what's wrong with me? That I feel nothing with my hands, face, and torso just laying on this hot stove. Why do I feel nothing? That is the question that should be asked. But if you are a Christian here and touching hot stoves, you are aware of it, you feel it, you do not have to walk out of here worried. We cannot make peace with our sin. We have to make war with our sin. This is a warfare religion. We have to make war. And I don't care how many times you click on that internet site and screw up again. It doesn't matter how many times you yell at your wife again. It doesn't matter how many times you lie and cheat at work. If you will keep coming back to the forgiveness of Christ and ask for His help, you will grow past that. But if you give up and make peace with the sin, this is who I am. You are in trouble. You cannot make peace with it. Make war with it. Get somebody in this church... Grab them and say, I need help. I am struggling. That is why we need each other. By the way, would you go back to Hebrews 10? Right before he says all this about outraging the Spirit of grace, And it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Do you know what is said right before that? Verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. But encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. And then he says, for if we go on sinning willfully. We need each other. When I was at the beach and heard Rob preach, it was so encouraging. We need each other. Part of the need is because we are prone to drift. We are prone to go away. We are prone to our sinfulness. And I need you and you need me to help us stay the course. We need each other. I will end with a personal story. Quick one. I've shared the depression and the anxiety that I really, 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 really went through 25 years ago, I've never ever shook a tendency towards melancholy depression or anxiety. I fight with it. I don't accept it, but I fight with it, and I deal with it, and that's just the way that it is. However, 25 years ago, it was all-out war, and I thought I was going to I was going to quit my job and check into a mental hospital and um, came really close on a couple different occasions. And the whole root of that fight for me was a feeling, a demonic feeling, that I was going to commit the unpardonable sin and there was nothing I could do to stop it. And God took me through that. God led me into a room filled with devils holding baseball bats who beat me about the head and shoulders for two years and taught me that His grace is sufficient in my weakness. And He taught me that His freedom is not fragile. And He taught me He is not letting go of me, no matter how horrible it feels. He taught me that greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And I don't mean as a t-shirt verse or a refrigerator verse that we glibly say, I mean crying out to God, I'm going to the hospital, I'm going to die. And taught me in those moments that he is real and present and I'm not going to commit a sin against my will. I'm not going to do that. God is going to keep me and hold me by His grace and by His Spirit. If You belong to Him. You belong to Him. The warnings are to have you examine yourself. Do you belong? Or are you playing? Are you pretending? Or are you just struggling this morning? And you're a Christian that needs to hear this warning to wake up and say, Lord, thank You for Your grace. Thank You for Your mercy. Thank You for Your love. Help me. Help me. You don't have to make ridiculous promises. I'll never do that again. What you need to do is say, I can't live another day, Jesus, without Your help. So I'm sharing that little story. and There's a lot to that little story but I'm sharing that to give you encouragement and to give you hope that the devil likes to use this unpardonable sin thing as a bludgeon. The answer for all of us is just open this up as the source of life like Peter who said, where would we go? You have the words of life. And drink deep and dig deep and eat frequently from his word. Let's all stand up. I want to have everybody bow your head with me this morning if you would. I just want to do this as an acknowledgement for you. And anybody who wants prayer after this service is over, I'm going to be right here and I would love to pray with anybody. But if you need God's help this morning and this resonates with you and you recognize that maybe your hand is slower to remove from that hot warning of the stove, the conviction of the Holy Spirit is getting more distant in your ears. Just raise your hands and say, Lord, I need your grace. I need your help. I need your mercy this morning. I'm not asking anybody to come up front. I'm not asking you to give us your life story. I just want you to say, God, I need help this morning. And I believe that in a church service like this, the Holy Spirit is here to help. Lord, I need you. If you're just struggling, maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum. Maybe you're like me in that feeling of, I've done this, I've went too far. I've messed up too many times. God, I need Your grace. God, I need the knowledge of Your love. I need the knowledge of it. I need to know Your Word says it, so God, help me to see it. Lord, I pray over every person here this morning, God, that You would do Your work. That the power of the Holy Spirit, God, You would do Your work in the hearts of these people and in their minds. God, teach us the difference. I may not have explained it very well, so Lord, help everybody to see clearly the warnings versus those who have just completely rejected and ran away in blasphemy. God, we need your help here, and I thank you for your mercy and your love that is poured out through your Son, Jesus, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. God, grant to every heart here to see new life in you. Lord, we ask for this in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Church, I love you. I'm going to be here to pray. If any of the other elders would like to come up, we'll, we'll be here to pray for anybody. Other than that, please remember there's no history class tomorrow.